the, the shorter term problems, I think, are always going to trump the, the, the longer term uh, strategic issues. But it's not quite the same thing as saying that this is power that's made in his image. Yes, it was an attempt to sort of build a reality that the Kremlin was happy with, right? But actually, it was an attempt to do that by engaging with the real reality. Putin is, is, is circumscribed. He has to deal with the interests that, uh, that are important in the system. <laughs> Howdy folks, welcome back to the Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is a podcast where I talk Russian news, politics, and culture, and I interview various journalists, academics, and activists doing interesting things in the field. On today's show, my guest is Sam Green, the director of the Russia Institute at King's College London. And we talk generally about politics in Russia under Vladimir Putin, touching specifically on arguments and observations that he made in the 2019 book, Putin v. the People, The Perilous Politics of a Divided Russia, which he co-authored with Graham Robertson. I've recorded this interview about a month ago, and I'm just getting it up now. I've been traveling a bit this summer, now that I'm vaccinated, and America seems to have put the worst of COVID-19 behind it. Actually, watching other places around the world, it's a pretty strange feeling to see the U.S. bouncing back while the coronavirus is still forcing lockdowns in lots of places, including in Russia. Anyway, all hail modern medical science, and please go get vaccinated if you haven't already, if you have access to a shot nearby. So yes, the release of this interview is a bit delayed, but it's coming out a day before the big Biden-Putin, or maybe it's Putin-Biden summit in Geneva on June 16th. Obviously, Dr. Green and I didn't discuss the summit a month ago because it hadn't even been announced yet. But I do think a lot of what we discussed is useful for people trying to understand domestic politics in Russia today, and that's a subject that people are thinking about a lot this week. As always, check this podcast description for chapter markers designating various sections of this interview where I ask specific questions. So without any further delay, here's my interview with Sam Green. What do you think your biggest emotional attachments or investments in Russia are? Because this, this this notion of of emotions and feelings is sort of at the core of the of the Putin v People book. And I wondered, I, I was I, and obviously this is like in keeping with kind of the like influence of psychology and psychological studies on on politics and political science. And so it's it's very you know now and all that. And so I was wondering. You know, while you're writing this, I, I imagine you thought about it occasionally and just, you know, you're in doing Russian analysis all the time and writing op-eds and this and that. Like, what, it, as far as you can speak about yourself, obviously, this, it's difficult to do, but like, what, to, what do you know your emotional attachments to be? I'm a I'm a, a political scientist, Kevin. We're not supposed to have you know emotions. Um, <laughs> your whole no, your whole book's all about it. Come yeah, on, so other people's emotions, right? Um, <laughs> no, I mean it's it, it's 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 a really good question because one of the things that's always struck me, right, um, is that I think you know Russianists in the discipline um, somehow get more emotionally attached to their subject, right, than than I think my my colleagues who study you know Brazil do uh, or you know or, or India uh, although actually I think my my uh, colleagues who study China have become increasingly sort of emotionally upset by by the, sort of what goes on there yeah. um so maybe you know certainly Americanists right I suppose people who study American politics can quite uh, you know 
worried about things. Um, but that's why I don't study American politics, right? Because I wouldn't be able to write about it without, you know, feeling like I had to take a side. And <laughs> and so I try, you know, I, I'm not a Russian citizen. I spent 13 years living in Moscow, right? Um, so, you know, on some level, I feel like I'm not supposed to have a horse in that in that race, and I'm just supposed to be kind of impartial. On the on another level, right? Um, you know, I'm married to, to to one Russian citizen. I'm a father to another Russian citizen, right? Um, and so, you know, I do, I suppose, have skin in the game. Uh, and uh, from that perspective, and of course, I have a lot of friends, right, and colleagues um, who, um, you know, do tend to be sort of on one side of of the political barricades in in Russia, as I think is true for most of us um, who who study Russia, including those whose sympathies might actually not. I don't know that many academics whose sympathies are kind of on Putin's side, but people who might consider themselves more. Um, even-handed, maybe, than they would consider me. So, you know, I, I think it is emotionally, to use that word, unsettling, right, to have witnessed what we've witnessed in Russian politics uh, over the last 20-something years, right? Um, I think that, the, that Russia felt like a very different country on a very different trajectory with a lot of problems, in some ways not better than than today, right? Um, the, you know, when, when I first came to Moscow in 1999 or when I came as a student in 1996, Right. Um, then, uh, then, then it does now. Right. Uh, and so there is this sense of, of lost time, of lost opportunity, of closed doors. Right. Um, that, um, you know, I think is, you know, one of the reasons that, that I've written about that, that I think has, has caused some of the, the protests and the opposition mobilization. Right. Is that sense of lost opportunity, that sense of a lost future. And I would be lying if I'd said that wasn't a, something that I feel my, Myself, of course, I have the opportunity to, you know, to live here in the UK and 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 have a, a different life, right? Um, so I may not feel it as as sharply as as people do uh, on the ground. It's not my lost opportunities, but out of a sense of of, of sympathy, um, um, I think more than empathy, I think genuinely sympathy, right? Um, it is it is something that I feel. So you're living in the UK now. You're you know you're a Russia expert. You're running you know, uh, an academic program out there. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know, like, how do you divide your time when it comes to kind of tracking Russia? Like, in terms of tracking kind of daily news and then reading kind of less timely scholarly analysis that's maybe goes deeper or has kind of deals with bigger ideas? Because this is one thing that I I struggle with, and I, I always wonder how other people are managing this in terms of kind of, you know, you can you could just sit on Telegram all day or Twitter or Facebook or whatever yep. and track every little thing you can get your hands on. You'll never be able to get it all, obviously, but little scandals, little right. utterances by some official, this or stat or this or that. And then you can turn around, you can read, you know, you can read a book, yep. you can read like a, a scholarly article. How, how do you divide your time? It's tough and it sort of comes and goes depending on what else is going on, right? So, you know, I am, you know, uh, I have a day job, right? The day job is, is, is actually less about, you know, researching and writing about Russia. Um, and certainly it's not about tweeting about Russia, right? Um, <laughs> it is about, you know, teaching and, and doing the administrative work of running an academic academic department, right? Um, so that takes up more of my time. I love the teaching part. I don't so much like the, you know, the, the grading essays and stuff, but that takes up a lot of time, right? Um, which means sometimes I don't have much time to follow what's going on. I do kind of have a morning um, uh, routine in general because um, I've been a news junkie since I can remember, right? So I, I, you know, I turn on the news on the radio in the morning and and I look over breakfast. I usually, it used to be three newspapers, right? I would look at the New York Times, the Financial Times, and Vietnamese. Vietnamese has sort of fallen off that list. In, in, in recent months as a result of the changes that have happened there. I've kind of replaced it with V-Times mm. and we'll hope that they survive. Um, 
And then I kind of, you know, so I've got my social media feeds for everything else, right? Because they're both in, you know, in the UK, in the US, but in Russia as well, right? There are lots of other, you know, uh, really good, you know, outlets and people doing, doing really good work, right? So stuff comes in from Medusa, stuff comes in from, uh, from Nova Gazeta, stuff comes in from a lot of the, the regional press, as well as just independent journalists and, 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 and bloggers, you know, doing stuff. So I kind of rely on my, um, on my social media, you know, friends and, and, and networks to kind of uh, bring things to my attention that, um, that I'm not seeing, uh, otherwise, right? And sometimes I have time to get into it and read it. And sometimes I don't and I do it anyway. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and then there's the academic stuff, right? So, you know, I get, I don't know, I, I get emails with all the sort of tables of contents from all the journals and, and, and people also post, you know, things that they're writing on. On social media, I mean, I guess the nice thing about academic work, with the exception of Putin versus the people, um, is that it's not written to be read word for word. I mean, most of of uh, of the way academic articles, particularly, are are structured, right? Um, you know, they're about eight thousand words long, right? But you don't read sort of every word of it in every section unless you really need to know the minutiae of the methodology for some, you know, part of the risk analysis they were doing, right? So it's you can kind of get the point by reading parts of it and letting other parts kind of, you know, uh, flow off into the, into the distance. Um, uh, but no, there's not, there's not nearly enough time in the day to, um, to, to read everything that matters, right. To just say, you know, nothing of everything that's actually getting written. Right. So it's, I think I, I tend probably to sort of catalog things, sort of park them away in in in, in folders uh, and then pu- pull them up again when I'm going to be writing something or when I'm on, I was going to say when I'm on an airplane, but that's been a while. Um, when I'm on a train. Right? I know you have a bone to pick with certain phrases that appear a lot in either journalism or even in in, um, in scholarly work. And one of them is is Putin's Russia. Another one is when people write like Russians think such and such. Could you walk me through why you just like those phrases? And if there are any others that, that spring to mind as just kind of like things you wish people would stay away from because they have baggage that people aren't understanding well uh so putin's russia um is it was phrase we all use i mean it's in the it's in the subtitle i think of my 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 first book right so i'm guilty of it right but um um but it does you know i think there's this debate maybe i'm the only one on one side of this debate right um but so we were just talking the other day um at um at an online conference about Tim Fry's new book, which is excellent, which I, I recommend. But, you know, one of the things that he talks about is sort of the, the, um, personalization of power in Russia, right? That, that Putin has sort of built this system that, that, that in, in, in his image or to his liking, um, and, and that he really, um, has, has tailored it, right? And I've kind of made the argument that, that I think it's, it's much more about personified power. Right. That, that, that Putin actually doesn't get to, in fact, if you look at Tim's book, it, it, it and a lot of the stuff, the, the good stuff that's being written, right? People recognize the, these nuances, right? But, you know, Putin is, is, is circumscribed. He has to deal with the interests that, uh, that are important in the system. Um, uh, in some ways, interests that he's not particularly comfortable with or that he may not like and certainly that he didn't create, right? But that he can't do anything about. He has to live with them. Um, uh, and, uh, and he plays a certain role for this system, right? One of the things that he does, um, is to make the system at least somewhat legitimate, right? Uh, because, you know, we could have debates about how popular Putin is himself, right? But he's a hell of a lot more popular than Sechin, right? Or Kovalchuk or, or any of these other people who are benefiting from his, 
uh, from, from the system of, of, of power, right? Uh, and so in order to keep things kind of legitimate and to, to win elections such as they are, right, um, he needs to personify this power. He needs to be the actor on the stage that everybody sees and everybody votes for, right? Um, and that does give him a lot of power, gives him a lot of leverage, right? Uh, but it's not quite the same thing as saying that this is power that's made in his image, right? And in a lot of ways, he is, he is the image of this system of power that, that, um, that exists, right? Um, in some ways, because he's helped to make it the way it is, and in some ways, because it's, it's just sort of the way things have, have worked, right? Um, so, um, you know, from, from that perspective, I think it, it is misleading to think about Putin's Russia, right? Um, I think in a lot of ways, uh, Putin reflects, um, something, uh, uh, deeper about the, the set of institutions and relationships that have sort of crystallized, uh, in, in, in Russian politics. Um, Sorry, what was the second bone you said I had to pick? The, the Russians think X, you know, like kind of generalizing. Oh, you know. yeah. Well, I mean, so generalizing is always a bad thing to do, right? <laughs> um, I mean, I think I'm certainly on the side, uh, you know, that, that we should, you know, uh, what really gets my, 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 my hackles up, I guess, is, is when we, you know, we say Russia did this or Russia did that, right? So that's the first level, right? Uh, what do we mean when we say Russia, right? If we mean the government, if we mean the Kremlin, if we mean Putin, if we mean the army, right, say that. If you don't mean 140 something million people, right, then don't just say Russia, right? If you, if you do mean 140 something million people, right, Russians support the, the, um, the, the president, then we need to think about, well, okay, what portion of them, right? But also, uh, are we really assuming, um, that everybody's doing all these things for the same reason? Right. Um, you know, we all have, we, we can find lots of people who were doing very similar things or maybe even saying similar things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the things that are going on inside their heads and the reasons that they're doing it are all, are all the same. Right. So as social scientists, we do need to, to generalize and we can't just sort of talk about, you know, um, uh, 140 something million uh, individuals. Right. Um, we do need to be able to, to, to break them down into groups. And, and that means some oversimplification and some generalization and that can get us into trouble sometimes. But, um, but we certainly don't want to assume that they are all um, of a kind, right? And we probably don't even want to sort of just divide them up into people who support Putin and people who don't, right? I mean, it, it, it is a lot more, uh, it's a lot more complicated than that, obviously. Do you think that that generalization, is that evidence of Russophobia or is it just kind of laziness and shorthand when you see it in the media, for instance? I think that for the most part, right, it is, um, uh, it is laziness and shorthand. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit because I think it really does depend on who's writing. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, when we, when we look at work by, you know, people who, who, who write about Russia a lot, right. Uh, whether it's the Moscow correspondents or, 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 you know, other people who sort of been around and, and they really pay attention to what's going on in Russia. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't think there's a lot of Russophobes in, in that game, right? I'm not really sure that there are a lot of Russophobes out there. There are some, right? Uh, I won't name names, right? But we know them. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but, um, for others, right? I think that there has been increasingly, right? Um, kind of this knee jerk, uh, kind of reaction, uh, that, I mean, we've seen these sort of, you know, political cartoons and things, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, caricatured Russian, you know, hackers or whatever. Uh, and, 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 and there's just this, it, it's, it's become too easy, I think now to, to say, you know, just to throw out the word Russian, right. And, 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 and provoke, um, a response in, in people's minds, right. Which is, you know, something that, that if people, you know, use the word 
you know, Mexican uh, that way or African in that way, right? We would get very, very angry, right? And and rightly so, right? And I think we, we need to get start getting a little bit more angry uh, when people use Russian in that way. Uh, sort of switching gears here, there's there's several points in your book when you you um, you mention Kristina Patupchik and you kind of talk about her her past role. I assume it's past. I don't. My impression is that she's not super involved in this anymore. But I could. I don't be think wrong so. No. That. Yeah. Yeah. Her Instagram suggests that she's living really her best life. It's just <laughs> on the beach constantly. So but good aren't for we her, all I doing guess. that on Instagram? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. Um, but uh, so you, there's several points in the book when Patupchik and her role in helping the Kremlin create it's sort of an online reality that suits the the Putin administration's narrative and so on. I wondered how serious do you think those those efforts were and like does the does the the escalation the apparent escalation mm-hmm. of online censorship now does that indicate that the Putin administration has abandoned whatever it was doing with Patupchik or is it doubling down? That's yeah, really interesting. I mean I think so the the, the the one of the big problems in analyzing Russian politics, right, is that we can't get to see where a lot of the decisions are are, are being made and people don't write tell all books as soon as they leave the Administration, right? So we don't. Um, the closest we can get, or we were able to get, right, was this this trove of of, of emails, right, that had been um, you know hacked by Sheltai Baltai and put out there on the internet for all of us to read. Um, and 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 it was surprising, at least to 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 to, to me and to Graham as we were reading through these, right, that there is just this. It was actually, yes, it was an attempt to sort of build a reality that the Kremlin was happy with, right? But actually, it was an attempt to do that by engaging with the real reality, right? Um, so it, it was about, you know, spin and, and narrative architecture, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and that kind of thing, right? But it was, it was about persuasion. Right. Um, and they, they spent a lot of time. She spent a lot of time, right? Working with all of these people, of course, who were being paid to persuade people in a particular way, right? Trying to give them ideas about how, how are we going to interpret and deal with these things going on right now, right? Um, in the world, in the streets, in Ukraine, in the financial markets with Navalny, whatever, right? Um, in order to, you know, get our point across in, in, in a very kind of Fox News-ish way, right? So they were, you know, fast and loose with the truth didn't really matter, right? Um, but um, it wasn't it wasn't about censorship, right? Um, and in fact, one of the things she would do periodically, because uh, she was writing, you know, instructions out to her um, her, her her minions, right, um, to the Ukrainitili, but she was also, you know, writing memos up the line, um, and these memos were often pushing back against things that were happening in the government and in the Duma. Um, you know, this was the time of the, you know, of the crazy printer, right? Um, and when they were you know, coming out with all these laws restricting the internet after 2012, 2013. And, and she said, first of all, you know, you're alienating the people that I'm relying on to actually get this work done, right? Um, but also kind of, we don't need to do this, right? Um, and we can, um, we can win these battles, right? Uh, by persuasion, right? Uh, and, and, and I think very clearly, you know, whatever camp there was, was uh, in the uh, in the presidential administration, right? That was arguing for doing politics that way, right? Is I'm not even sure they're hanging on by a thread anymore. By this point, I mean I think they're 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 long. Um, they they they've lost the battle, right? Um, the the Kremlin has clearly come to the conclusion over the last six to twelve months, right? That uh, that they're done playing this 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 game of of democracy. And so in that in that respect, then the rising. The rising online censorship would indicate that Patupchit's kind of like mission is they've canceled it. They've moved on to something else now, you think? Well, I mean, I'm sure there are still people, um, look, there are still trolls out there, right? There mm-hmm. are still people, you know, getting paid to, to, to post stuff on, on, on social media. There's still people engaging with all of this, right? Um, 
but it's uh, it's no longer central, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, there, there there was a time, you know, sort of from from Pavlovsky, sort of through Surkov, right, um, uh, in the presidential administration, where where it really, you know, the game was what uh, was keeping people on side. The game was was um, uh, was was persuasion. Mm-hmm. And uh, for, for a variety of reasons, uh, I think partly because it didn't work as well in certain periods of time, right? Uh, but also partly because um, the people who knew how to do it, I think, sort of found themselves out of jobs and the people who were in the jobs no longer knew how to do it, right? I mean, Volodin is not the most, you know, kind of nuanced debating mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. opponent, right? Um you know, is, um, you know, for, for, for a combination of reasons, they've decided that's not the way they're going to go anymore, right? Uh, that, 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 um, it's not, um, the game's not, not worth the taper. So they've, they've, they, they allow it to happen, right? But they're not, they're not staking the, the future of the regime on it. I know you said already that it's because people don't leave the administration and write tell alls, the, 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 the government or the, the administration is sort of a black box. Just intuitively then, how much do you think Kremlin decision making is divided between kind of normal statecraft, you know, like fixing roads and paying for things, and this sort of whole world of outsmarting the anti-Kremlin opposition? Because I, I, it's it's funny to me because often uh, so much of what I'm reading has to do with the Kremlin's political crackdown. That if, you know, at the end of the day, I think, well, when do they have time for anything else? And so obviously they do. And so I guess like, what is your, what's your thinking? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, I mean, the anything else, right. Um, obviously happens at a, at a local level, right. Um, so it's, it's mayors and governors responsibilities to take care of the roads and the hospitals and the schools and, um, and, and the stuff that actually matters mostly to most people's lives. Right. Um, uh, there's, you know, a disturbing amount of centralization for a country that calls itself a federation. Um, uh, so, you know, they don't have a lot of leeway in terms of how they're going to raise the money and, and what the spending priorities should be, right? But they are given the rope, you know, with which to, to, to hang themselves, right, in terms of, of, of implementation, right? We see governors who, who, you know, Governors who fail to do that miserably, right? Uh, we see them often, you know, losing, losing office, right? Um, and, uh, and and we see some you know indication that that you know that plays into to electoral results for United Russia on a on a local and regional level as as well right and so that that matters um, again I don't you know. Uh, <laughs> The, the Kremlin does appear to be preoccupied, right, with, uh, with, with staying in power, right? So to the extent that the rush, the, the, the Kremlin cares about, you know, whether roads are paved out in, you know, um, uh, in the Urals, uh, or wherever else, it, it's, it's more because of the way that that filters it up into an electoral result, I think, than it is, um, or, you know, or, or, or protest, if that's the thing, right? Then, then because of, of, um, you know, any real concern over the, you know, the quality of, of, um, of, of asphalt. Um, but there are, you know, um, there are within this, uh, you know, a lot of professionals in the, in the system, right? So, you know, we think about Russian companies as being corrupt. We think about Russian ministries as being corrupt, but they're also populated by people who just want to get their, get their job done, right? And the corruption is, is kind of the price of, of, of doing business and being in power. But, um, you know, Russia's fiscal management is pretty good, right? Um, they would, you know, rather spend money more efficiently than, than, than they do, right? Uh, and, and more effectively than they do. And, and, and they take their gains where they can, where they can get them, right? Um, so, you know, I don't think there's anybody in the finance ministry who, who likes the idea of paving and repaving roads every, you know, um, 
uh, every year or so, right? Just because it's actually interesting to somebody, you know, down the value chain to get a little bit of money out of those contracts. So they're looking for ways to to improve this. We've seen, you know, uh, introductions of some things in terms of of of, of e governance, right? That that have had um, uh, an impact, and. Um, you know, generally, I think, in fact, there's some research that's been done by uh, my colleague at King's School, Nalshara Fudinova, and, and some people at the World Bank looking at, at, um, you know, the, the, the relationship between the introduction of these sort of, uh, e-governance platforms, uh, and political support and, 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 and perceptions of corruption, right? And it does, it does work, right? Um, so, you know, again, this comes back to, I think, the, the, the initial sort of question about, you know, uh, what kind of, of system is Putin running, and 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 whose image is it is it created in? I don't think that Putin has, himself has any, um, you know, particular interest in, you know, bad maintenance of roads and 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 schools and hospitals. It, it's it's just a price that he has to pay, right, uh, for, uh, for for being in business. So that would suggest that the 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 sort of leading mentality of the of the at least at the top of the Kremlin has more to do with just remaining in power than any kind of like policy agenda. Then. Well, I think it's a combination, right? So, I mean, my, my assumption, right, again, without being able to sort of get inside Putin's head, but sure. my assumption is that Putin and the rest of the people around him, right, you know, don't get up in the morning, right, look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm a dictator and, and, and a tyrant and I'm going to, you know, and, 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 and I like beating people up, right? I, I think it's, um, they, you know, they, they probably have, right, a sense of, okay, you know, um, these are our long-term strategic plans, right? Um, these are the things that we need to do sort of in the medium term to reach those long-term strategic plans. And these, these are the things on the agenda for today, right? Um, but then, you know, they, they probably, you know, maybe do what I do in the morning, right? They get their news briefing in the morning uh, and they see all these other things, right? And if any of these other things that are happening, right, um, look like a threat to them being in office tomorrow, Right. Um, or two months down the road. Right. Then they need to deal with those first. Right. Um, so when you can't rely on, uh, sort of normal institutions and electoral cycles, right. To know that you've got another three years in office, five years in office. Right. Because you know that those, that those elections are to a large degree a fiction and you know that everybody else knows that they're a fiction, which means you could end up out of power sooner than those elections come, uh, come up. Right. Um, then um, you don't have the luxury of thinking, okay, I can I can take some hits now, right? In the short term, I can let these fires burn, right? Because I really want to focus on that on that longer term uh, strategic goal, right? Um, so the, the 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 shorter term problems, I think, are always going to trump the 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 longer term uh, strategic issues. From what I understand, you're an American living in. The UK studying Russia. In your, from your perspective, what are the kind of main differences, if any, exist between American expertise on Russia and British expertise hmm. on Russia? Because it's it, this is always this is something like I've you know I've grown I've lived m- almost my entire life in the United States, and I generally don't interact much with face to face with with British people. But ever since I started working in the Russia game like probably half people I interact with are, you know, from the UK. And it's just always struck me as like, this is, it's, I mean, it makes sense. The the UK is a lot closer to Russia and has a lot more Russians in it, kind of like relatively speaking, I I think. And so what what do you think the, the diff- are there differences between UK and US Russia analysis? Uh, funding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who has more? Is it, is it? Oh, the US. Oh, okay, uh, right. but, but the US has more funding in academia in general. Uh-huh. Right. Um, so, um, 
You know, um, the UK has a tremendous historical school, right, uh, for studying uh, Russia, right? Uh, and so you take the institutions like the School of Slavonic Studies, right, um, uh, at, at, at UCL or St. Anthony's at, at Oxford, right? Um, uh, but, you know, uh, places, a lot of it's fallen away because funding has, has decreased, right? Uh, but um, so places like, you know, Birmingham, Manchester still going, but not, you know, certainly not what they used to be. Uh, places like Glasgow, Edinburgh are still doing very well, right? Um, and other places, you know, Exeter, uh, has got a great little group, right? Um, and, you know, I've been very lucky that we've been able to, to build something, uh, at, at King's that wasn't there before. Um, uh, but, uh, those, you know, we've been able to do it in part because there, there is this sort of tradition and, and, and history of, of, of interest, right? Um, uh, I think in terms of the differences, yes, I mean, funding matters, right? So there's just more funding for social science, even though my American colleagues would, you know, um, uh, are constantly crying about how, how much less money they have than they used to, right? It's still a whole lot more than, 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 you know, we've ever had. But I think there's, I don't know if it's the flip side of that, but there, there's more room for academic area studies, um, in, in the UK than there is in, in the US, particularly in, in the social sciences, right? Um, so, um, you know, the, the UK is, is still a few years behind sort of the, the quantitative turn in, um, in, in political science in particular, which means that for people like me, right, who tend to, 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 to want to dig into things a little bit more interpretatively, um, get into sort of thicker modes of, of, of research and analysis, spend more time, you know, reading things rather than counting things. It's just easier to get and keep a job, I think, than it would be, uh, you know, in a, uh, in the U.S., you know, political science department. But, you know, having said that, you know, I think the U.S. has, has really begun to, um, to recover, right? So I, I, in, in that respect, right? So you see a lot of, of, uh, you know, particularly places, you know, think Columbia. I mean, Harvard's always been there. Uh, actually, so was Columbia, of course, but, um, Wisconsin, Indiana, Stanford, George Washington, right? Uh, places that, you know, we've known for a long time, right? Uh, but have really, uh, been able to square this circle of doing, uh, you know, rigorous quantitative research in the way that, that, you know, political scientists are supposed to these days, right? Um, while, uh, also maintaining a really deep appreciation for the nuances of, of what's going on in, in Russia and the region. Um, so it's, um, in that respect, the U.S. is catching up. That's my interview with Dr. Sam Green, the director of the Russia Institute at King's College London and the co-author of the book Putin v. the People, The Perilous Politics of a Divided Russia. I think they needed some more P words in that. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. And extra thanks to those of you contributing to this show at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock. Until next time. Погадать на короля.